explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Dustin Gilligan is an award-winning Australian Geographic photojournalist who was recently sent out to Port Phillip Bay just off Melbourne to document the march of the spider crabs. A natural spectacle, the enormous crabs congregate to avoid predation, but now they're facing an all-new threat. So I'm really excited to be talking to Justin on this episode of Talking Australia. Just to clarify, this podcast was recorded remotely due to COVID-19. So for the newest issue of Australian Geographic, you've travelled to Port Phillip Bay in Victoria and you photographed and documented the march of the spider crabs. The images were spectacular, but paint a picture for me of what you, what exactly you saw down there. Yeah, well, and it's, it's generally speaking, it's a pretty easy and accessible site to dive. So all you have to do is sort of park your car near a jetty, fairly close to the site, gear up at the back of your car, and then just wander off the shore straight under a jetty. And it's pretty sheltered. There's not much current, not much swell. So it's it's really nice and uh, easy diving. And any, anyone can really do it, whether you're a scuba diver or a snorkeler. And often you can just see the crabs walking along the jetty, which is great. So the sites themselves are pretty um, great sites in their own right without the spider crabs. The, the jetty pylons are covered in sort of really beautiful invertebrate growth um yeah there's lots of seahorses and different species of crabs and sea slugs uh, are living amongst that sort of invertebrate growth um then then you sort of look around the scene and there's light filtering through the deck of the jetty and yeah it's sort of creating laser beam patterns on the sea floor which is which is really nice to see and then after a bit of a swim you sort of start to see groups of crabs and then eventually there's there's like hundreds and and sometimes even thousands of crabs covering the seafloor and they're sort of some are piled up uh, five, in groups of like five or ten on the seafloor and then they're they're all the way up the piles and under the um, the jetty structure so it's a pretty spectacular scene and you and you can sort of swim out from underneath the jetty and look up and you can see people fishing and and see people looking down at you or looking down at the strange dark shape glowing bubbles underneath so it's it's a really beautiful place to explore but especially great when there's this um, mass aggregation of crabs happening and why is it that they aggregate there so the, the crabs mostly live at um in at much greater depths outside of port phillip bay and bass strait and so sort of generally speaking they they enter the bay in smaller groups and then the smaller groups start to gather and, and the, the small groups sort of get bigger and bigger until you get the mass aggregations. And by aggregating on mass, the crabs are seeking safety in numbers. So, so crustaceans have a hard body armour, like an exoskeleton, which they need to shed to allow them to um, grow. So the crabs molt all at once over a period of a few days 
in, in total, it takes a single crab about an hour to molt. And then there's another three days after they molt where they're quite susceptible to predation because their shells are, are really soft and take three days to harden. And during that time, they're susceptible to um, predation by stingrays, seals and uh, octopus. So um, they just can't seem to get enough soft-shelled crabs. So many end up being eaten by the predators. But because the numbers are so great, uh, most survive and then they're able to make their way back into um, Bass Strait. And obviously in a lot of the images that you um, you had taken, there were things like stingrays and, um, you know, um, all these different predators. I mean, what was it like seeing that in action, like all these predators come and feasting on these, these very vulnerable crabs? Yeah, so that was pretty amazing. And it was, I think as, as an underwater photographer, that's kind of what you're after. You're trying to find some type of interesting behaviour um, a lot of the time. And yeah, I was just fortunate enough to time it well. It doesn't really last that long. It lasts for a week or two, possibly the peak of the action at the most. And so the crabs move in and that's when the, when the stingrays come in and, and it's one or two at the start, but then it, there can be 12 around at a time swimming through this mass of um, spider crabs. And they're like giant sort of creepy crawlies in a pool, sort of just going up the side of the walls of the pool and, and um, yeah, just moving through this mass of crabs, trying to find the soft shelled crab. But um, it's, it's, just really amazing to to see that unusual behavior because the stingrays are just so big they're about four meters long and two meters wide and um they're the largest species of stingray in um australian waters so it's it's quite a spectacle to to see and and to time it to be right in the middle of that is um yeah, just an amazing thing to experience. I just want to go into the, the timing of it. Obviously, um, what I like so much about your photography in particular is that it does capture those incredible animal behaviours. So I'm wondering what goes into the planning of a shoot like this and what kind of gear did you use at the time as well? I think in terms of planning, the critical thing was to try and stay connected with the local dive community down in Port Phillip Bay. Because it's so variable, this uh, event sort of happens between um, April and June for a couple of weeks uh, every year. So it's it's a fairly sort of large window. So I, I don't really have the ability to go to a place for three months and, and just wait for this to happen. Um, so what I need to do is stay in contact with the local dive community down there and just, um, yeah, let try and ask them to, to let me know once the, once the action starts and, and I'll try and take that risk and get there to try and be there during the, um, the peak of the action. So that was one of the critical things about the planning. And then in terms of diving, as I said before, it's, it's pretty straightforward diving when the, when the weather's suitable. So you can dive off the shore, which is really useful and easy to do and um, yeah, it sort of takes the, the problematic sort of aspects of boats and, and trying to time the weather sort of to get offshore out of it, which is good. And then, um, yeah, also working from shore, you have the ability to sort of change lenses easily in between dives. So underwater, you can't really change lenses because your camera's in an underwater housing. I have my um, underwater housing with SLR uh, inside that 
protected from from the water and then um, using external strobes as like um, artificial light because it's quite dark under the um, under the superstructure itself and so then in between dies I can change lenses to try and get more close shots or, or stick to sort of wider shots and um, yeah so it's it's really really easy diving like that which is good and the other critical thing that I really needed down there was a really thick wetsuit because the water gets to down to it was about 12 degrees when I was there so it's a little bit chilly but I was fortunate enough to use a dry suit this time around so that allows you to remain sort of nice and toasty and uh, you can wear tracksuit pants or and a jumper and sort of different layers underneath the um underneath the dry suit to keep yourself warm. And what were some of the challenges once you were down there and how long were you down there for to to actually take the photos? So each dive, you can actually dive for quite a while down there because um, it's, it's kind of shallow under these jetties where um, the spider crabs take shelter. So it's, it's only sort of three to five metres deep where the spider crabs are. And that means you're not restricted for time. You don't really have to think about sort of the issues around repetitive dives and things like that. So, um, yeah, you, you can really stay as, as long as your tank will last and as long as you can stand the temperature really. So um, I would do a two-hour dive on average and the best lights are early in the morning or late in the afternoon. So try and... Um, do three dives a day. So one early in the morning, one in the middle of the day, and then a dive in the late afternoon. So three two-hour dives in a day down there, which um, which sort of gives you plenty of time underwater. But, yeah, it's just trying to keep away the cold. That's the, That was the biggest challenge. And just taking you back to 2017 when you won the Australian Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year Award, that was obviously for a picture of spider crabs. Do you think that spider crabs are maybe a returning subject for you? Well, that's it. I, I definitely hope so, Ange, like, <laughs> because they're just so interesting and, and amazing to, um, yeah, just, just watch and just the unusual behaviours associated with them are, um, yeah, just, just means that they're, they're really interesting to photograph and really interesting to observe. And then once you have like hundreds or even thousands of crabs in one spot, that in itself is quite a spectacle, but then you you sort of introduce a predator such as the the big smooth rays down in Port Phillip Bay or the Maori octopus from Tasmania. Then yeah, just to see that interaction between the predators and the um, the spider crabs is just something that's just so intriguing and entertaining and just such a challenge to um, to photograph. So I definitely hope that spider crabs will be a reoccurring theme in my work in the future. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you will also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. In the article, you mentioned the work of the Spider Crab Alliance. Can you kind of um, talk me through, I mean, um, you know, what their role is and also um, the conservation issues facing the spider crabs at Port Phillip Bay? 
Yeah, so this was a, a relatively um, new threat that kind of um, started last year during the aggregation. I was there actually uh, covering the aggregation last year. And um, yeah, the word had gotten out that there were um, soft-shell crabs available to catch under the, um, under the jetty. And it wasn't, it's not something that's kind of been on um, people's radars previously. And so word spread throughout the fishing community that there was easy access to these soft-shell crabs that had freshly molten, molted un under the jetty. And, um, yeah, so that sort of brought the fishes and, yeah, sort of increased that fishing pressure on, on the aggregation un under the jetty. And the problem there is that the aggregation's widely known. It's on the doorstep of our second biggest city. The dive community's sort of all over it. So when when the, the spider crabs are in the area, sort of everyone knows they're there. The dive shops are receiving payment from divers that are coming there to hire tanks and hire gear. Um, yeah, so, and, and yeah, the divers are there to actually enjoy the crabs. So for them to see the crabs getting taken out, the same ones that they're underwater looking at, that was uh, a bit of a shock to the local community. So they... Um, decided to form the spider spider crab alliance in in response to that so it's actually legal to capture crabs using the traps that they were using and you can take 30 crabs a day but um i guess those regulations weren't really put in place to um manage like a, a mass aggregation in in one location and yeah it's just that conflict of um different uses that was that that um, forced this community group to, to come up and um, raise their concerns. So they put together the Spider Crab Alliance and what they are hoping to do with that is to draw attention to the issue. They've also um, started a petition, which people can, um, can get online and um, check that out at change.org. And uh, so, so their ultimate goal is to increase awareness and then gain support the spider crabs in the area and then sort of take their proposals to government in the hope to sort of change the rules and regulations about spider crabs and there's some specific things that they're actually looking at doing they what they want to see um an increase in research into spider crabs which is fair enough because there's not a whole whole heap known um they'd like a seasonal ban on collecting for example um which is probably fair enough due to those conflicting uses they are fairly widespread, the spider crabs, but yeah, it's just that sort of conflicting use within that specific area that's um, the problem. So um, if all the spider crabs get taken out from uh, that one sort of location, then maybe the spider crabs won't return to that same location next year. It may not impact the overall population of spider crabs in southern Australian waters, but it could potentially impact this um, this spectacle that people come and see. And I guess some of the other things they're asking for is increased compliance action and um, increased education for fishers through signage and things like that. 
I think it's a really interesting conundrum that you um, you mentioned that you know it's sort of a recent issue um, in that people only have been only doing it over the last you know uh, a certain period of time. And I feel like I first heard about spider crabs from um, the Magical Land of Oz, the documentary on the ABC, and um, it's kind of like that Nemo effect where people finally learn about these incredible creatures and these incredible, um, this incredible natural phenomena, but then maybe like it doesn't always serve the species. Have you come across that, um, in your work at any, at any time or just like more broadly? I, I think so. I think, um, I definitely think that's like a, a reoccurring theme. And I think that, um, yeah, I think the spider crabs have got a lot of exposure through, um, blue, Planet Two, for example, that was a big one. So there's there's a lot of support behind them, but um, yeah, I I think that sometimes when a particular area or a particular event is um, sort of promoted through um, through a documentary or through social media or through um, any other means, really, then um, yeah, it can cause a problem, and it can just cause a problem through sort of too much um, tourism. If it's not un, if it's sort of unregulated and not managed properly, then yeah, just having a lot of people in one location to even observe like what, uh, an interesting animal behavior or something can impact on on that animal. So I think it's um, yeah, it's definitely not a new thing, and there's lots of examples of of that throughout throughout Australia and the world. And I guess that's the I guess that's why um, sort of codes of practice for whale watching and interacting with whale sharks and, and things like that come about because of those potential impacts from, uh, from us even just going to appreciate things, let alone us sort of going to catch things and eat them. And just going back to, um, you know, just even the fact that you've mentioned the Spider Crab Alliance in your article, I'm wondering... You know, you could have just as easily written like just a beautiful natural history piece that sort of left them out um, and left out the conservation issues. I'm wondering, like, what responsibility do you have or do you feel as a photojournalist um, to include those include those things and make sure, um, you know, those sort of conservation stories are a part of um, the storytelling as well? Well, I think it's a, a critical part of it, really, and I think that um, a lot of my stuff is the interaction between people and the natural environment. So this was something that was just obviously occurring when I, when I um, sort of visited the site. So it wasn't really well known then, but um, it was just something that, I, that was happening and I was sort of taken aback by it and I just thought that was a critical interaction that I had to let people know about. And just because there was more and more sort of interest and more people signing the petition and more people concerned, then I, that was even more of a reason to um, sort of get this message out there and sort of try and get more people involved, more people educated about the issue and, and more people to get behind the Spider Crab Alliance. And what do you have coming up in terms of projects? Um, I have another feature coming up with um, Australian Geographic on the same sort of thing, the interaction between uh, people and the marine environment of Moreton Bay. I'd done a, a similar piece to that in the Sydney region. So it's kind of um, a follow-on from that, I guess. So it looks at some of those amazing environmental and ecological values 
that we have uh, right on the doorstep of, of some of our largest cities. So similar to the Port Phillip Bay piece, but um, yeah, just looking at, looking at some of those amazing things that are just outside our doorstep there that people might not know about that are, are just underwater, sight unseen, but yeah, there's just these crazy things happening just offshore. So I guess there's the, the great um, ecological and in, environmental values that's gonna, going to form part of that piece. But there's also the, the hardworking research that's happening in that area as well by, by a number of different marine researchers and uh, conservationists as well, working to sort of maintain the, the, the health of their own backyard. And I guess ultimately, um, yeah, telling that story is just about sort of edu educating people about the threats that come from uh, threats to the marine environment from the nearby city environment, but also you know, it's, it's paying respect to those people working to conserve those areas or promote awareness for those areas. So yeah, that's, that's a, a piece that I have coming up that I'm um, pretty excited about, which is, which is great. I have to say as a Sydney cider and um, reading your um, piece on the, uh, the kind of sea life in Sydney Harbour and seeing kind of like, I think it was like a twoies can with like a guppy or like some sort of fish coming out of it. It was really, really incredible just because I guess I had kind of not thought about the marine life in Sydney Harbour because I just thought of it as this really kind of like as dirty, like what would live in there kind of thing. Um, how important is it to make people aware of, you know, this marine life around them? Um, yeah, how important is that to kind of build those connections and make people understand? And what impacts do you see that having? I just think it's really important. Like, um, and it's just, it sort of comes back to decisions that we can make in our sort of everyday lives. This is an extreme example, but someone may like throw a piece of trash away or discard a, a piece of litter and not really think about it. But hopefully, like if they see the pictures and read the story then and hear about the, the work of conservation groups going on to help clean up and protect certain areas, then I hope that would make them realise that that's a potential threat by them doing that. So, um, yeah, maybe they should put that in the bin or maybe people should try and make more informed decisions on the type of um, yeah, just retail items that they buy. So items with less plastic, so there's less less risk of that material entering the waterway or sort of, um, yeah, different chemicals that they use for washing their car or washing their car in the gutter as opposed to on a lawn. Sort of, yeah, just, just being aware of um, certain certain issues. And I just think it's important to try and capture images that make people sort of stop and, and want have a think about things. And that's that's the challenge, I think, of um, being an underwater photographer, just trying to come up with something that is kind of interesting enough or, or pretty enough or engaging enough to make people sort of stop and, and look and, and read more and, and hopefully learn from that. So I think it's definitely definitely critical to get those stories out there. And now I have to ask, you've relocated to Lord Howe Island, I think it was last year for work, so I need to know, how is it living out my dream life? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, it's pretty much as you imagined it, And Sorry. <laughs> I wish that I could say <laughs> that it was terrible, but it is, it's 
<laughs> yeah, Lord Howe Island is just such an amazing place. And it's, um, yeah, the, the benefit of just having time to explore the marine environment of Lord Howe Island is, is just that it's so healthy and pristine and there's not many sort of impacts from people here because there's a limited number of people and there has been some issues in relation to sort of warming seas and, and coral bleaching. But um, the reefs recovered quite well. That was a couple of years ago from that. But that is an emerging threat that could potentially impact the reef here in the future. But um, just seeing, like being able to explore a shallow lagoon like Lord Howe Island Lagoon with this un unusual mix of tropical and marine species and, um, yeah, just a mix of seaweed and coral and the beautiful colours and crystal clear water, is it is it is a dream. So... Yeah, sorry, sorry for that bad news, Ange, but that's it. Um, well, as usual, it's been lovely speaking to you, Justin. Thanks so much for coming on Talking Australia. Thanks so much, Ange. Appreciate it. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.